Hello and welcome to Hysteria. I'm Erin Ryan. And I'm Alyssa Mastromonaco. Alyssa, is it just me or is October extra spooky this year? Girl, I feel spooky from head to toe. Okay, let's tell our listeners what just happened over the course of the last week with both of our, like, concurrent spookiness. Okay, so yours was the most spooky, so you should go first. Okay, so my cat, Eleanor, who's 16, uh, got sick mysteriously. It's a very long story, but I figured out what was wrong, took her to the vet. We had to do a quick surgery, but she came out of surgery all hepped up on painkillers. Ketamine, (laughs) literally ketamine. They gave her ketamine. Um, So she came back. She had a cone on her head. She was really loopy, and so I put her in a room to kind of recover. Now, that night at 3 a.m., Luca, our dog, wakes Josh and I up, wakes us up. And I get up, and I was like, you know what? I'm going to go check on the cat. I go into the cat's room. One of the windows, the screen has been pushed out, and Eleanor is gone. And I scream, like bloody murder scream, and run because she's loopy post-surgery 16-year-old. She is a coyote snack in my part of Los Angeles. So I run outside being like, my cat is dead. My cat is dead. And shes I, I catch her in the midst of taking her cone off. Like, t- remove. she's in the middle of her daring 3 a.m. escape. Okay, I bring her back in. Luca is a hero dog. Like, he literally lassied her back. You know, he was a, he's, he's great. I cried into his fur like, oh, thank you. Anyway, he just, he was proud, didn't know why. Next night, you know, Eleanor is kind of on the road to recovery. She's sleeping in the bedroom. And uh, all of a sudden, I wake up to the sound of something thumping on the screen in the bedroom. And it is a huge cat trying to come into my bedroom. And Eleanor is trying to fight it through the screen. Now, when you say huge cat, you mean like actual huge cat, like potentially maybe even small bobcat. I thought it was, but I was also in the middle of, like, I woke up. I'm pregnant. My brain is jello right now. So I didn't know. I thought I saw a cat, like, a window cling, you know, like a Garfield yeah, window like cling. Yeah, like Garfield on the Garfield on the back of the like car. Like climbing on the, um, on the screen. And Eleanor being like, hiss. And she, the cat was twice as big as her. Ran away into the night. And I was like, okay, that must have been what busted Eleanor out the other night. The cat has returned. And tried to break in, and Eleanor has been ready, like waiting on the other side to fight. We don't like, we don't have our windows open anymore. Anyway, so this cat keeps trying to break into my house, and I don't know what to do about it. And which is spooky. It's spooky. Why is that? What is what is the cat looking for? What do they What do they want? And Alyssa, you texted me the other morning. So then I text you as you're about to tell me second bobcat I'm like you're not gonna believe this I was outside with my arborist because yeah I got some tree problems up here you're fancy and and rural (laughs) look (laughs) I just want to make sure the beetles from the dead white ash don't kill my green ash that's all I care about and so I am with my best friend Tom Butcher and we're both like what is that noise it's crazy and then for a minute I realized it's a cat meowing and I'm like What the fuck did Midge escape? Because Midge is the only one with balls who would actually try to ever leave the house. And I look, and it is a cat trying to break into our house. Something is going on. And you know it took a lot for me to not, like, he seemed healthy. He was, like, making his way around. But, yeah, he was trying to climb into the windows and the front door. Yeah. I mean, the end of my story is I am going to try to TNR this cat, trap, neuter, release, because I think it may be a big stray, and it'll probably calm down if it has some. Healthcare. But yeah, what the hell? It's spooky. 
Yes, it's spooky. Anyway, let's get to the show. This week, we're joined by Representative Rosa DeLauro, Dana Schwartz, and Julissa Arce to tackle the following questions. What kind of jerk brags about not taking paternity leave? Why aren't we talking about what's actually in the budget reconciliation bill? Is calling a woman badass a compliment? And have we learned any lessons about air travel etiquette during the pandemic? All this and more right now. Okay, news. Let's get to the news. There was a particularly dumb moment in the national discourse this past week, and I hate having to dignify it with my breath, but I feel like we should. I feel like we should because this particular trash is the utmost hypocrisy, which should always be pointed out. Absolutely. And and it kind of ties into stuff that we have been talking about a lot lately and that I've been thinking about a lot. And I know you think about it a lot too, Alyssa. And that is like the value of labor, what constitutes valuable labor and whose labor is respected and compensated. Um, so first, I want to talk about Secretary Pete Buttigieg. He and his husband are now the proud parents of twin babies that they adopted. Uh, the babies were born premature, which is something that I didn't know until yesterday when I read Me neither. S- when I read Essie Cup's story, which means that they require a lot more uh, intense care than a baby that was born at term. Plus, there's two of them. Two of them. Holy, that's a lot of baby. That's twice as many baby. It's twice as many baby. Twice as many babies <laughs> as most people ever have to deal with at once. That's Co- correct. That's so many babies. Um, so they have two babies. And Secretary Pete took time off to spend with his children and his husband learning how to be a parent and bonding with them. And that spurred a backlash in right-wing circles uh, because apparently there are a lot of men in this country, and women too, who think that the job of childcare should fall only to women. Um, I'm just curious if children of gay parents are just supposed to raise themselves. There's no woman there who does the work. Correct. And also, it's just it's like you and I both read Essie's column and she makes the point. Republicans, Tucker Carlson, Tom Cotton, the that troll who loves to jump on any train headed the wrong direction, Marsha Blackburn. They're all like, oh, my God, is he are they breastfeeding? What are they doing? Oh, and, and they made all these disingenuous like attacks that he'd been gone for weeks, months, that he'd taken months and months, when really, as SC points out, if you're the party of pro-life, why are you attacking someone who adopted two kids who potentially could have been aborted? But they weren't. And now they're being cared for in a loving home by people who are like doing their level best to bond with them and make sure that these premature babies are healthy and thriving. So what the fuck? Yeah. So I kind of interpreted this as a sort of like, tell me you're a shitty dad without telling me you're a shitty dad. Tell me your wife kind of hates you without telling me your wife totally. kind of hates you. One of one of the things, I don't know how healthy this habit is, but it's a habit that I picked up and I'm admitting to it. Um, I love lurking on Reddit boards about you people too. that are upset 
about relationships that they're in. So there's like bad mother-in-law Reddit boards that are super fascinating on a voyeuristic level. There's also uh, Reddit boards that are about mothers who feel like they're not getting enough help around the house and women who are just kind of fed up because they don't really have the support that they need. And I don't want to call it out by name because I don't want to like blow it up. Fair. I feel like it's a safe space for the people that participate. But so many people have partners who are totally not active participants in raising their children. And it's something that causes like a slow mental drain on mothers that eventually becomes insurmountable and irreversible. And I read, you know, this is a thing that's, you know, you can find statistics that vary here, but some divorce attorneys estimate that about 80% of divorces are initiated by women. And I'd imagine that that might be due in part to the fact that if there are children in the equation, which are essentially a job in and of themselves, and their husbands are not picking up any of the work to take care of the children, that would lead to some dissatisfaction, burnout, frustration. And um, yeah, so like... Shaming men for taking paternity leave is just I can't I can't I can't think of a stupider, wronger side of history to be on. And I can't think of a more embarrassing way to tell on yourself as a as a man, as a husband, as a father. Um, yeah. And also, I feel like the 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 commentary was meant to be homophobic, like totally. do- dog whistle homophobia. Um, but here's the thing, Tucker. He was born in New England, what, in the 70s? Ish. Yeah, his yeah. mom drank a shitload when she was pregnant, I am sure. Because it she wasn't. She smoke, too. <laughs> exactly. And a lot of women did back then because it wasn't until totally. the late 70s that that was across the board discouraged. So, like, people whose moms smoked cigarettes when they were pregnant probably shouldn't be talking shit about gay men because they can't breastfeed their kids. Like, Deal with your own problems, you know, like whatever. Anyway. Also, not all women breastfeed. <laughs> yes, we can get into Tucker this. Tucker doesn't even know that. Like, that's the thing. Well, he probably, I mean, him, he married the headmistress's or the headmaster's daughter of a private school that has its own sailboat. Uh, that is true. And so I'm sure he and his wife had helped to raise their four children. And uh, so I'm sure that he's more alienated from the real work of raising children than most people are. Um, And so it's just embarrassing. It's like you don't know what you're talking about. You don't know what you're talking about. And you don't know the extent to which you don't know what you're talking about. And it's just like kind of cringy to watch, kind of cringy to watch. Um, Let's talk about uh, what else is going on with labor. And the reason this ties into our labor conversation is because I think that right now we're at this kind of flashpoint in America where there is a debate over whether or not feminized labor is valuable, essentially. At the core of it, it is should labor that is super feminized be fairly compensated or treated as something that has monetary value? Or should it just be something that every the society continues to act entitled to? So I'm talking about like care work. You know, I'm right. talking about motherhood. I'm talking about parenthood, which in general is is the lion's share of that is done by a woman in a heterosexual house. Um, so that I feel like there's a massive devaluing of it from people like Joe Manchin, from people like Republicans, all Republicans who don't 
feel any need to add additional support to these feminized jobs. Um, and then you also see it in sort of fields like nursing and teaching, where people feel right. entitled to the work and the safety and the the lives of nurses and teachers in a way that they don't feel entitled to the work of an engineer or a doctor or a construction worker. <laughs> you know, nobody is demanding uh, sweet compliance and pleasantness from construction workers the way that they do from teachers. So anyway, let's segue into the next labor topic that we are going to talk about, and that is people who are the people doing the majority of the work for American manufacturing and for anything that is uh, made in America and whether or not they're fairly compensated. So Alyssa, can you bring us up to speed with what is going on with organized labor this week. So organized labor is busy. Um, first, we have the negotiations between IATSE and the film and television studios. IATSE is a union representing Hollywood's version of blue-collar workers. They represent camera operators, makeup artists, prop makers, set dressers, lighting technicians, editors, script coordinators, hairstylists, cinematographers, writer's assistants. You get the idea. They have reached a tentative agreement for a new three-year contract. Now, what's interesting about this is that... The negotiators have reached it, but there's a decent chance that the rank and file vote against it because, Aaron, the deal, which is better than what's happening now, still essentially says that IATSE union members can be made to work a 74-hour work week. In the bill, um, in the negotiated package, there are provisions for you know, from the time that filming ends to the time it begins again, there needs to be 10 hours of rest, that there must be uh, a 54-hour weekend. But the point is that 10 hours of rest after potentially an 18-hour workday is a little crazy. And also that these are the people who fueled these industries. Like if these people had not shown up in a pandemic to work, masked up and taking all these precautions to be able to uh, show up and and make the content that we all binged, um, none of it would have happened without them. And so it seems like as these companies, which is a theme we're seeing, um, Amazon, Netflix, Disney, they're all thriving. They're all doing pretty well. So it feels like the IATSE members are saying, mm, time for us to thrive a little bit more too, which is not dissimilar to what's happening with the John Deere strike. Um, John Deere workers are like, you know what? We fucking also have worked our asses off. And guess what? In the past two negotiations that the workers had with John Deere over their contracts, John Deere wasn't financially thriving during those negotiations. Well, guess what? This time, they are. Their stock up until the strike was up something like 23%. And workers are like, you know what? We want a floor wage that's like, this is how much we make. The union workers were negotiating for new employees to be brought up and made as much as they were. And um, it's not entirely clear uh, where this is going to end. But I think that it's safe to say that after uh, so many workers from coast to coast have given 150% under the worst circumstances, they're finally like, okay, where's mine? And they deserve it. Right. And, you know, this is sort of the effect of what happens when a company prioritizes adding value for its shareholders before it takes care of its workers. And uh, eventually that's just going to bite you in the ass. The workers are going to be like, hey, what about I'm, that? <laughs> I'm 
making all the stuff. I'm doing all this stuff. One of my favorite things about the John Deere strike, uh, in addition to the fact that it's happening, um, is the fact that John Deere tried to bring in scabs to yeah. <laughs> to work in the factory. And on the first day, one of the scabs crashed a tractor and yeah. it caused some caused, caused a ruckus, pandemonium in the streets, if you will. Um, so that was kind of that was kind of funny. It's like, yeah, that's what happens when you try to bring in someone unskilled to do the work of a skilled person who deserves to be compensated as such. Um, and IETSE, just as someone that's like worked in Hollywood, around Hollywood, uh, it is is pretty criminal, the disparity between mm -hmm. what uh, high paid people in Hollywood make and what people who actually make things happen get paid. Um, writer's assistants, this hasn't happened in any of my rooms, but notoriously writer's assistants work like twice as long as mm -hmm. the writers and they get like fifth as much as the writers and they get treated like an assistant even though they're doing a lot of creative work and they're generating a lot of ideas and it is uh i think most people that i know that are cool that work in hollywood are firmly on the side of IATSE. so hoping that both of these have positive resolutions for the workers and um that maybe companies that would try to pull exploitative moves like you know, Netflix and, you know, streaming services and John Deere, et cetera, will think twice knowing that workers are kind of motivated to take a stand now. And that, like, shit doesn't go great when you don't have workers. <laughs> no, you need them to do stuff. Yeah. You need the workers to do stuff. That's the main thing. Um, okay, let's take a quick break. When we come back, we have one of our favorite members of Congress here. So excited to talk to her. And welcome back. Today, we are excited to welcome back to the show one of our favorite members of Congress, Rosa DeLauro of Connecticut's 3rd District. She's been a member of Congress since 1991. She's the chair of the House Appropriations Committee, a founding member of the Congressional Progressive Caucus, and a leader on the fight to end child poverty. And last time she was here, she made a pretty strong case for dyeing your hair purple. Welcome, Congresswoman DeLauro. Thank you so much. It's wonderful to be back uh, with you, Erin, and with you, uh, Alyssa. Really, it's a great, a great program that you have. And we had a great conversation the last time. In addition to purple hair, I think we did talk about paid family and medical leave. Yes, yes. <laughs> Let's get into it again this time, because right now is such a crucial moment. And Alyssa and I have talked about this, and we both feel like the news media has focused too much on the drama of congressional negotiations oh. and, and not enough on the substance of what's being negotiated. So, Congresswoman, can you briefly explain to our listeners why these weeks of congressional negotiations are so important to a pro-children and family agenda? Well, what it, it, it's historic in so many ways. Um, we have not been able to have the kinds of serious financial investment uh, in families in children, and I don't know how many decades. So it's historic in that regard and transformative. And so critically, when you think of what is in, people need to stop focusing on what the top line is. They need to think about what the process is. Uh, they should put that aside, but think about it. Take a look at what we could do 
do with a child care uh, 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 assistance in an industry, allowing families to be able to have access to child care that's safe uh, for, their, for their kids, to pay the people who work in these child care establishments a living wage. So they're taking care of our most precious, uh, you, you know, thing, the, the babies are the most precious to us. They're taking care of them and they're paid dirt wages, uh, quite frankly. So, so you look at child care. Take paid family and medical leave. Uh, you've heard my story in the past, how I used it for when I was sick with ovarian cancer, when my mom was ill. Uh, and you know what's critically important about this one, which is really which when I'm listening to what's being said about four weeks, et cetera, you know, members of Congress, if they get sick or their families get sick, no one says, you don't have a job. We're not going to pay uh, your salary. No one says that to anyone in the administration. God bless him. Secretary Buttigieg has just taken, you know, several, uh, more than several weeks with his baby twins. That's a positive. That's, that's very good. But if it's good enough for the Congress, if it's good enough for administration of officials, it's good enough for the American people. So child care, paid family medically, the child tax credit. For me, the flagship, the flagship. Lifting families out of poverty. Poverty, child poverty, we have lived with year after year after year. And for the first time, for the very first time, it is. It says that we can provide a lifeline to middle-class families, to working families, to poor families, uh, and we can lift 55% of children out of poverty in this country. And it's working. It's working now. Erin, four payments, only four payments, and we're looking at between six, eight million kids already lifted out of poverty. The number on hunger Hunger in these kitchens among kids is going down. Why then aren't we making this the place where we need to go to extend it, to expand it, to make it permanent uh, so that we address that issue in our country of child poverty? It is social security for children. Congresswoman, you bring me to my point, my question rather, which is we see in the few months that we that people have been receiving these checks that it's working. Yes. It is absolutely working. And yet last week it was reported that Senator Joe Manchin is demanding that the child tax credit come with an income cap uh, around $60,000 and a work requirement, something that's typically referred to as means testing. What are these requirements meant to do and how could they impact the success of the program? Well, I think what they do is to ensure the failure of the program, to be very honest with you, because one of the critical pieces of the child tax credit is that 90% of children will get the same benefit. So it is a great equalizer. So that makes it, again, when I make reference to Social Security, people enjoy Social Security. No one would take it away. People, everybody, you know, participates uh, uh, in it. Uh, so that, uh, I, again, it would, it, it would be the failure uh, if we went down that road. Now, with regard to income thresholds, I'll be perfectly clear about that. The bill that I introduced, along with Susan Delbeni, um, Richie Torres, and my three Senate colleagues, with, uh, with regards to income, we had $180,000 uh, for a family, if you will, $130,000 for a single 
parent. Okay. Now, the bill as it went in reflected what Republicans had put in $400,000. That was put in by the Republicans. So I am happy to scale back. Uh, and if we went to where Joe Manchin wants to go, it is absurd. It really is absurd because we are going to be leaving out of families uh, that, you know, by necessity need to have this kind of, of, of as I said, that lifeline. And, and, you know, the stories, the stories that I'm hearing, and I know my colleagues are hearing from people, what people are using this money for, diapers, health care, food, uh, child care, pay for child care so that they can go to work that they can work. Orthodontia, braces for their kids' teeth, which they haven't been able to pay for. Uh, school supplies. Somebody wrote in and said, school supplies. I've been, not been able to afford school supplies for my kid. And you know what? Some fun activity, like maybe a camp or a, a recreational activity or a sports activity that you have to pay for in a school so that your kid could play football or basketball or something. That's what people are using this money for. And anyone who says that people will not go to work and that they will use it, you know, for drugs or anything else, just that demeans working people in this country. It really demeans and it doesn't show any respect for people and how they perceive themselves and their confidence in their job and how they contribute uh, and, and their dignity and how they want to provide for their kids. Your, your parents, you, you're a parent by definition. What you want to do, your, your chief job is to make sure that your child uh, uh, is well taken care of and that can survive. And that's every parent's uh, uh, view of what their job and their role is. Let me go back for a second, because Aaron said, you're right, that we need to describe what's in this bill so that the American public understands it. And quite honestly, I don't think that the media has been terribly helpful in this process. And, and members of Congress as well need to talk about it in terms of the content and its consequences on people. And it is an economic lifeline. These programs are economic lifelines for people in this country. Yeah, you know, uh, Congresswoman, I am, uh, I'm pregnant and I'm due on Halloween. Oh, yay! Yeah. My, yeah. My, my stepson is born on Halloween. Jonathan Seaberg oh. is born on oh, Halloween. Great. <laughs> great. Well, I, you know, I was going to add to what you were saying about, like, the cost of diapers and stuff. And as I've been moving toward this due date, I've, for the first time, had to look at how much things cost. And they're expensive. Like, they're so expensive. And I think a lot of people that maybe aren't uh, people like Joe Manchin, who are well beyond their childbearing years, probably not purchasing things for children, people who just aren't really in touch with how expensive those things are with regard to um, with regard to the average American's income. It's it really shows how many members of Congress are just totally out of touch with how much it costs and, and to maybe, have a child. Maybe his children can afford it, well afford it. Right. And, you know, that, that's fine. That's OK. But there are so many families, and as I said, middle-class families, working families, poor families, that just don't have it. And it's not because, uh, you know, they're dogging it. 
It's not the case. I, I don't know if I mentioned this before, you know, my own personal experience at about age 10, nine or 10 years old, um, I went home with my parents on, on, on a Friday night and um, we found our furniture on the street. We had been evicted. And it wasn't that my family wasn't killing themselves, both my parents working, my mother in the old sweatshops in the city of New Haven, my dad is an insurance salesman. They were working, but they always had financial challenges. And so we went to live with my grandmother, you know, until we could get back on our feet. And people who are working, who have difficulties, you, you know, th this is this is a bridge. This is something that helps them. And what we found in Canada is when they did the studies that it encouraged people to work, that if you could afford childcare, that you would go, you would take on the job because you knew that your kid was, was being very, very well taken care of. So all of these things that they say about people are so demeaning and they're just untrue. And it is uh, not someone who recognizes how people are living paycheck to paycheck these days. Uh, uh, and you know, quite frankly, I don't know where their values are about where government needs to play a role and what government needs to do is to help people as, we, uh, as, as they strive for economic security. Congresswoman, the original budget proposal was $6 trillion from Senator Sanders. The Budget Committee came back with a compromise at $3.5 trillion. Reports as of today say that we're hovering around 1.7 to 1.9 with proposed cuts. And again, like you say, the top line is not necessarily the issue. It's the proposed cuts to programs like paid family leave and objections to the climate uh, provisions in the bill. Mm -hmm. If Republicans were in power, would they be negotiating against themselves? Absolutely not. Absolutely not. And my fear with regard to the child tax credit, if we end this view that we extend it, uh, only a year, which is, I believe, is a very serious mistake, and we will miss an unbelievable opportunity. And I'm going to pressure, by the way, for you, you, you know, for there to be a framework that's enduring uh, for benefits for kids and uh, in, 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 in their families. And if you think about it, um, uh, one year, you, you put um, everything at risk uh, to uh, the political winds. And uh, we shouldn't, our children should not be, uh, you know, subjected to political wins. No, the Republicans would not be negotiating against themselves. And quite frankly, uh, Senator Manchin isn't negotiating against himself. He continues to negotiate on those issues uh, that he says are important, to, are, are, are important to him. Now, I understand financial constraints. I do, Alyssa. You know, so if we are not going at 3.5, which seems to be the case, and we're moving down, but let's take a look at where the biggest impacts are being made in order for that economic security for families. I think about, as I said, childcare, paid family and medical leave. We found out what happened during this pandemic where people lost jobs, not through their own fault. They had no income. Uh, etc. And we're the only industrialized nation in the world that doesn't have some sort of a paid family and leave program. And I look at the child tax credit. Climate is another important effort. So let's take a look at some of them. We can also be creative as to how you can stage or phase in some of these other pieces and put 
that into practice. I have thought very hard about the appropriations process, which I'm engaged in, which says, what can we pick up in appropriations over the next few years? Because these are, th these are plans that are over 10 years. And so there are a number of creative ways uh, to be able to make, look at those that are most impactful, move forward on that and move to get other things done. My view has been, let's do few things, do them well, and not do a little bit here, a little bit there, and you get almost nowhere. So like we've discussed, Congresswoman, um, it seems like there's a gap between uh, people knowing what is in the bill and uh, and like the action that is necessary. So, you know, like my group of girlfriends from college, for example, we were all on a group text and we're all college educated, really smart. They all are very plugged into the news. And some of them didn't know what was in the Build Back Better plan. And so I think there are a lot of people out there who are people that would care really passionately about this if they only knew. So what advice would you give to our listeners who want to sort of spread the word about what is in Build Back Better and what they can do right now to make sure this gets across the finish line. You said it very, very well. Uh, it's not a slogan. I, I believe in you know Build Back Better, but this is not a slogan. This is not one dollar amount. This is about uh, what are the challenges that the country is facing right now? This is a response to those challenges. Let's take a look. Look into the legislation. Don't just be listening uh, to the news reports. And all the news, in my view, what the news wants to do is to pit one group against another uh, and, uh, uh, and deal with a top line. Find out what is included here, like childcare, like family and medical leave, like climate, if that's what you care about, uh, like universal pre-K, uh, the child tax credit. Understand and uh, take the time to understand uh, what this means. And it's just not understanding, it's what impact will it have on your life? What impact does it have on my life? And I, and I say to you, and I, I don't know anything about your, I don't know if you can take advantage of a child tax credit. I just don't know, know that, you know, with salary and everything else. And I'm not even asking that. But is this something that is good for you at this, at this stage in your life? Is, is making sure that we have a robust childcare a, a, a piece that's there. Is it important that you are able to take up to 12 weeks to bond with your new baby the way they do in other countries? Four weeks is hardly any time. You're just trying to figure out what you need to do as a parent. There's no manual for parents, you know? Uh, you're up at night, you, you know, how do you, you know, you're even afraid, they're so tiny, you're afraid to hold them and so forth. Give parents that time. And if God forbid, if somebody has a, an elderly parent that is sick and needs you to be there, give them, give people time because to be, because you know what? I'll go back. Members of Congress have this privilege. They can take as much time as they want. And any member of the administration can take as much time as they want. 
the American people deserve that same right to do that for their families and for themselves. Congresswoman, thank you so much. I am so motivated now. Come I want to like, let's go. I want to put on a sandwich board that is like, find <laughs> out what's in the bill and like run down <laughs> Sunset Boulevard. Credit. Let's go. Let's go. <laughs> yes, okay. exactly. Thank you so much for joining us. And hopefully the next time you're back, it will be to celebrate this here, being here. passed and implemented and even more people being lifted out of poverty as a result. Here, here. Take care. And thanks to you both. You're fabulous. And thank you for carrying the message. Appreciate it. Thank you. Welcome back. Alyssa, I have a question for you. I've always got questions for you. I love it. It makes me feel so needed and wanted. (laughs) Have you ever gotten a compliment that somebody said it as a compliment, but as you thought about it, you were like, is this diminutive? Yep. Like, what is a word that people sometimes call you that feels like it's not an actual compliment? It wasn't... It wasn't okay. So the time I'm thinking about, I'll put aside because that wasn't a specific word. That was a whole conversation that that just turned out to it was trying to be a compliment, but it turned offensive. Someone told me how hot my sister was with great surprise. <laughs> I was like, oh. <laughs> <laughs> like no, Alyssa, like she's really hot. And I was like, yeah, I fucking get it. Am I literally the hunchback? Like, what are you <laughs> like? Are you kidding? But no, I love when people are just like, especially when I was in government and I was like a bit on the younger side, they're like, what a spark plug. (laughs) What does that mean? (laughs) I mean, I know what it means, but like, I just felt it, it felt a little bit like Gidget had come to Washington. And I'm not saying that I wasn't like Gidget comes to Washington, but I mean, spark plug just seemed like, you know, they could have done better. Yeah. Why couldn't they call you a wunderkind or something? Oh, wunderkind. Listen, anything German is fine by me. Anything German? <laughs> Not ever. Post nineteen fifty and reparations. Okay? Sure, 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 sure. They've done a good job since since uh, the the problem. Jurgen on the Great British Baking Show. That's that's German representation. I can I'm get behind. I'm saving that up. I'm saving it up for uh, for when I'm stuck inside for months. Okay, and months. not a spoiler. He has a Jewish family, and so a lot of his bakes are like he's like this is a Passover themed pavlova. Oh, I oh love that. I can't wait to watch the season. Well, I'll introduce the other two people who are here. One of them you was just talking. She is an author, writer, and certified boss bitch lady of Thank history. You. <laughs> Herstory, please. Herstory, Dana Schwartz. Dana, welcome. So good to have you in studio. Oh my God, this is surreal and amazing. I know. It feels it feels great. Last week I forgot the address. I did too. I had to email Caroline. <laughs> nice. <laughs> nice. Uh we also have another author. She's also an activist and a shero, Julissa Arce. <laughs> Julissa, what I'm is wearing a, my what? cape today? <laughs> it's it kind of blends in with the wall behind you. You're doing like white on white on white. Um, what's a word that you get called sometimes that you're like, ah, I know you mean that in a nice way, but that sort of makes me feel like you're calling me like a plucky young upstart. Well, I hate it when people tell me that I'm well spoken or that I'm eloquent. Uh, I absolutely hate it when people tell me that because I'm like, well, what do you expect? Like, especially after they know like I'm a writer, and then all they're like. Oh, you're so eloquent. I'm like, well, what? Why did you expect me to not be? 
eloquent. I really hate it when people tell me that. Have you ever asked somebody that question, why did you expect me to not be, and watched them sort of squirm? You know, I have not done that. But now that you've put the idea in my head, be careful. <laughs> be careful the next person that tells me that. <laughs> I mean, it's it's one of those things where if you do that, that is choosing violence. But sometimes you just have to choose violence when it comes to stuff like this, I think. Yes. Um, okay, so we're going to talk about the word badass and the ways that we compliment women and the ways that are sort of culturally ingrained for us to compliment women for being tough, for being strong. Um, Dana, I know that you have a particular history of uh, disdain for badass, and I would love to hear why you hate that word. Okay, so here's my theory or my read on the situation. I think for centuries, uh, not centuries, maybe decades, the American uh, education system has focused on the men of history, the quote-unquote great men theory of history. And I think recently, for good reason, people have tried to counter that and and bring up the many women who contributed to history in a meaningful way. But I think that rather than address like the systemic way in which we teach history through the perspective of great men, people have just sort of thrown women up in this like condescending and flattening way, just being like, oh, here's like 25 badass women of history. Um, as a way to sort of like overcompensate for the way that women throughout history just aren't really taught. But then the consequence of that is it really flattens every woman. It lumps them all together. It's like, look, it's Amelia Earhart and Rosa Parks right next to each other. And it's like (laughs) those are different women who did different things in in different ways. And just by lumping them all together in this like, quote unquote, badass um, thing, it both uh, like it flattens them by making them all like heroes in which, like, not all women in history are heroes. Right. And also, badass is, like, sort of inherently masculinizing. It, like, it's rewarding women for exhibiting, like, stereotypically masculine behavior throughout history. Like, whether they're tough or we're able to, like, fight in a war or, like, do things that we think are worthy because we still have this paradigm of, like, male historical worth. Mm-hmm. And we use women as a category in a way that we would never be like, here's 25 badass men of history. Yeah. Like you you would use women as a category. And in that category, Rosa Luxemburg and Margaret Thatcher can be on the same list. Oh. But you would never have like Che Guevara and like, I don't know. Some, Abe Lincoln. Like yeah, some right. Like, you know, it's, it is a weird way to kind of categorize. But Julissa, I understand that you feel different about the characterization of badass and i would love to hear why you feel that way yeah okay so on the on the list on like you know 25 badass women like i'm still fighting the fight of like making sure that like latina women are included in those 25 badass women list so that's my fight right now you know uh you can call me badass if you're gonna include us in like the list that's fine i give you permission um, this is what I do on the show, by the way. <laughs> Dana, I give people permission to do I things. love it. <laughs> permission granted. <laughs> I just realized that. Um, and I think so that's that's on that. But like more broadly on like the whole badass. Like I think I think what I have a problem with is, is when like when we were talking to um Alicia Menendez about likability trap, right? And and when certain attributes are okay for men to have, and then when women exhibit them, it's a negative for them, right? So when women are considered aggressive, when like men are considered 
uh, confident. So that's what bothers me about like what we call women is when there are different standards for how we use them towards men and women. But I think there is something about reclaiming these words and and instead of saying, oh, these attributes are stereotypically masculine to say, you know what? They're not just masculine. They're also feminine. And I am going to reclaim that word for myself. Like when I have my acrylics on and my hoops on, like I do feel like a badass bitch, you know, don't talk to me when I'm wearing acrylics. Like, so I do <laughs> think that like, I, I, I do think that there is a beauty in reclaiming certain words. And for me, badass is a word that I use. Um, like I described my literary agent, uh, Lisa Leshny, as a badass warrior woman in my first memoir. And I stand by that because when I look at her, I think she is all of those things. Like she's gone to battle for me. She is a badass and she does badass things. And I want to keep using the word. I think I totally see that. And I think in a modern context, I I definitely agree. Like if someone's like, you're a badass right now, I would feel very cool I think where I, coming at it from like a very like historical angle, I, I do like a, a history podcast. So I'm like looking at like women throughout history. And like a lot of them are like nuanced, like semi bad people who did some shitty things and some good things. And I think like sometimes people call historical women badass just as a way to sweep over and oversimplify a legacy that's like really complex that like. If it were a man, they would look at that with more nuance and and uh, detail. Like Elizabeth I or Catherine the Great, they did like some good things, some bad things. They they, I think like calling them feminist is an oversimplification in a way that like isn't useful. And so I think badass when it's applied to like a situation or like an individual like who like in modern context is like feeling great is great. And I think that when it's used as a crutch because people don't want to, like, look at female historical figures with nuance, that's when I take issue. It's like the Helen Kellerification yeah. of uh, of historic women. I didn't know about her political— Oh, yeah. Her political bent until I was fully an adult. I just learned that she was, like, a, a blind— and deaf woman who learned how to read. And isn't that badass, Aaron? <laughs> uh, like, everything else, literally, that, I mean, that is a really, she overcame a lot in order to do those things, but that is literally the least impressive thing. Like, starting here, that is, like, the least impressive. Everything else is, like, even more impressive. But, um, Alyssa, I would love to hear what you think about this whole debate. Like, do you ever think I'm a badass? I'm a badass. Do you ever call someone a badass to encourage them? Or do you think that it's something that maybe has been turned into more of a marketing slogan at this point? It feels a little markety to me. It's a little, it's a little, um, a little girl bossy. Um, but for me, I think it's that because I worked around so many men for so long in, in every, you know, like when I was, when I was in the government, it's like I sat next to four-star generals and I, you know, like I ran the gambit. And so I never wanted anyone to call me a badass because it made me feel like different or like I needed special praise for something when I was kind of just like acting. I was playing on like I was sitting at the same table with all these other people who 
were arguably, you know, we like, never call men badass. No. And so here's an interesting. This is what I was thinking about when I was when I was getting ready for today. It's like the book about LBJ, right? It's called Master of the Senate. It's like 900 pages. And it's like, well, I don't want to call Nancy Pelosi a badass. I'd rather call her like the master of the house. You know, like she's as good as he was. And so to me, I don't know. I don't love the word badass. It makes me feel I know it's a compliment. I've never been called a badass and not and taken it as anything other than a compliment. I guess I just wish that, you know, I, I guess I wish people would ra I'd rather people would be like, Alyssa Master Monaco, what a dame. You know, I mean, to, <laughs> to me, I feel like that's a more holistic uh, view of me. You know, like to me, dame feels like she fucking gets it done. She's a good time. Like that feels more <laughs> specific to my personality and what I think I like about myself than like uh, than badass. I don't know why, but there's something about seeing uh, RBG quotes or like pictures with like that bridesmaid cursive font on Etsy that just like sets my skin the wrong way. Right. Yeah, I know what you're saying. And also like, why isn't Sonia Sotomayor getting more quotes on yeah. Etsy? Because she says stuff that <laughs> she is- She says cool things. She's the only she's one a saying badass cool and she needs to have her own goddamn quotes. She's the only Fair. one saying Fair. cool things right now. She's literally the only cool one because on the Supreme Court. I mean, when she's telling the other Supreme Court justices that they're burying their heads in the sand, like, <laughs> yes, she's a yeah. strong one. Once we turn a woman into a badass girl boss, she just becomes like a, a mascot more than a person. Oh, that's really interesting. That's interesting. Mm -hmm. So, Julissa, you were saying that what you are, you like badass as like an interpersonal way to like encourage people or to reassure them that like what they're doing is really cool. Like they're cool and tough. You are acting cool and tough. Yeah. So, okay. So I am of the mindset that there's a time and place for everything. And with this word, it's with this word, it's the same thing. Like, I think there is a time and a place where you seem badass is great and it can be empowering and um, and it can be used uh, in a flattering way. There are also times, uh, you know, as like Dana pointed out, like, yeah, we're talking about women in history. Uh, maybe there are more articulate words to use versus just slapping a, la a pink label on something and calling it a badass and uh, expecting that to be sort of like an empowerment thing. Uh, but, you know, I think about, for example, like the pussy hats that we all wore uh, during the Women's March. <laughs> like, I think a lot of people were like, oh, like rolling their eyes. Like, you fucking kidding me? A little pink pussy hat. Like, that's what makes you feel empowered. And I'm like, yeah, like seeing this many women show up wearing like similar things, standing for a similar cause. Yes, that does make me feel empowered. Like, no, I'm not going to keep wearing my little pussy hat, you know, when I go to the grocery store. Like, I'm <laughs> over that, you know. But so I think there's a time and a place for everything. And I agree that it can be minimizing to women's accomplishments when we use words like girl boss or boss bitch or even badass. Um, but I also think that there is a time when they're fun. And in that context, I think we should keep using them. I would like to nuance something I said earlier is that I'm okay if someone's like, that was badass. Like something I did was badass. Cause that is like, I was like, oh, thank you. But like being called a badass, I don't know for some reason that's like different to me, but I do, if someone says, oh, that was badass. I'm like, oh, thank you so much. Yeah. And then jumping off that, I also, for some reason, feel like it's different if it's coming from a woman versus coming from 
a usually older white man. 100%. Yeah. <laughs> where it's like, if a girl tells me I look or feel or do something badass, I would be like, oh my God, thank you so much. But if like, if I'm in like a TV writer's room or whatever, and he's like, and our protagonist is a badass girl, and that means she has a ponytail and wears a leather jacket. I'm just like, oh, <laughs> Jesus Christ. That is so that is so true, Dana. And I think that that kind of gets to uh, how I value compliments in general <laughs> um, and who I dress for in general and who I care about impressing in general. And that is like – I think in a world that's dominated by men, if it feels like men are delving out the compliments to women, I sort of look. I don't want to. I don't want to just like blanket dismiss men because hashtag I not, will hashtag, <laughs> hashtag not all men. But I think that when it's when it's being issued by like you know some male studio execs have decided they're going after like badass female stories, like that means less to me than a woman noticing something or being like, look, I just read this book about this total badass who did X, Y, Z, uh, and I think that this would make a really good movie. Yeah. Like, it, it just, it feels different to me. It's, it's to me, literally, it's like, when you say, when when a woman says badass, by and large, she means something I feel like different than when the middle-aged studio executive says it. And when he says it, he means a size two white lady with a ponytail and leather jacket. <laughs> yes, exactly. Conventionally attractive. Stunningly beautiful and the love interest to the male hero who does interesting things. Right, exactly. He's the only one who can see how beautiful she is. Yeah. Oh, Through well, she, all of her badass masculinity. That she's she's basic. She has a man's personality but in a hot <laughs> woman's body. She'll drink beer. She's t- she can do karate kicks. <laughs> she's, she's all kinds of tough. She rides and, a motorcycle. Yeah. yeah, and six takes inch her heels. helmet off, and it's a total surprise when she has long hair and is hot because I didn't know women could ride bikes. That's this is the first time it's ever happened. Um, Alyssa, I would love to hear what you think about the badass, like as a compliment, and whether it's part of a sort of highlighting stereotypical masculine qualities. I wonder what you saw when you were working in DC. Like, what kinds of women? were the ones that were like complimented and if they weren't using words like badass what other what words were being used no it there was a lot of badass not a lot of girl boss down in dc um <laughs> but a lot of times it was you know if i really think about it a lot of times if someone called me a badass or something similar it was because something i did seemed not feminine i guess mm. right like one time we were in, where were we? We were in Indonesia. And remember the plume when the volcanoes erupted and the fiery plume chased everybody around the globe and planes couldn't fly through it? So I was just like there with my little jacket and my pins on that said I could be where I was, uh, you know, my security pins. And uh, the, the captain, pilot of Air Force One, was like, look, uh, we're, when you're there for a summit, all the leaders have all their planes at the same airport usually. And he said, the plume is coming. And if we don't take off by whatever time it was, you know, we may get grounded, not be able to leave. And I was like, well, what, what do we have to do? And he's like, well, the Chinese want to pull out ahead of us. I was like, fuck the Chinese, Con- the, the government, not the people. Um, and I was like, fuck it, pull, pull out Air Force One, do it right now. And then I went and told, as I regaled, I was kind of like hopped up on the adrenaline. And uh, I went to go tell the president. And he was like, what does that even mean? I'm like, it means we got to hurry up. And he was like, OK. And then one of the Secret Service agents was like, that was kind of badass. And I was like, 
Well, did you not expect that behavior? Like, my first thing was like, well, why is that different than how I normally act? You know, Uh like, I think I always do that. But I think it was that I was I was showing some bravado, I guess. I was, Mm -hmm. you know, it was like adrenaline, like jet lag. And I was like, (laughs) but I think that that's normally I think normally when I had been called anything like that, it, it was because I was doing something that was, you know, dudish. Yeah. Yeah. Badass is one that I've heard bandied about what's it what's like what are some others julissa dana that you've heard that are sort of in the same vein as badass but that aren't exactly badass i mean maybe it's limited to the tv world but i feel like a strong female protagonist Uh is the thing that implies the least it just says absolutely nothing while trying to yeah that's that's interesting i sometimes feel like the the things branded as strong female protagonists are written by people that are afraid to actually show flaws in a female yeah. protagonist mm-hmm. because they really wa- they want to elevate women, but really what they want to do is pretend that women don't have. They think strong literally physically means that she can punch a door. <laughs> and you know what? Can I just say something? Of the television that I find the most compelling, it's always with women who are like real fucked up and complicated. The it's best. like Mare, okay? Mare had a lot going on. Fucking Alex Levy and Bradley Jackson on the morning show. They're all um they're all not a hundred percent good people. And that's the most relatable thing. Yeah, that's that's like that's an interesting point. And I kind of wanted to get into talking about Succession. Did you guys all watch Succession? You oh, know yeah, I, I did. had a Succession. Yeah. Uh, I watched it three times. Party. You had a okay, a Julissa. Four, a party of four because, you know, still COVID. <laughs> that's still a party. That constitutes a party. Yeah, like, four people. Bi- biblically, I think if two or three people are there, Jesus comes to – it's a Jesus party. Two or three are gathered and whatever. Anyway, <laughs> uh, I, I mean, I think I think I probably maybe went the farthest with Catholicism. If anybody in this room, um, no, Julissa, I want to know what you think about uh, the characters in Succession, like Shiv and Jerry and Willa. Like, are these women badass, or are they more? Are they like so evolved as characters that they're beyond badasses? Yeah, I don't think I've ever thought of Shiv uh, or Jerry as badasses. Really? What yeah. do you think? I like, don't if think you I've were... been like, oh, she's a badass. Yeah. But but I do think they're like, but I have, I think, well, now I'm trying to remember if I have ever uttered the words, oh my God, that was so badass that she just did that. I probably have now that I'm thinking about it, but I don't, I don't think I've called them badasses, but I do think they're like strong. I'm going to use the strong characters, who, you know, <laughs> like, they, yeah. like they are, they are, they're not like, I don't know, like. I'm using strong as in the opposite of meek, you know? Yeah. They, like, that's what I mean. Not like physically strong. Right. Yeah. They right. go head you know. to head with all the men yes, in the show. Exactly. And yeah. like, I feel like, you know, Shiv, especially, I mean, we don't know this season because it's only episode one, but like in previous seasons, she's also been very like strategic about things. Yeah. And, you know, she's used like, she's used things and thought about things in a way that none of the men have. Right. Which gives her like a unique advantage in trying to position herself to take over to take over as like CEO. Uh, And and I admire that. I'm like, yes, girl, use everything you got. She's doing that. They're also so different, which is, I think, the, the best compliment you can give to like female characters is like they're all distinct. Like Jerry is a very, very different character than Shiv, who's a very, very different character than Willa. And so it's like describing them all. I mean, Willa. 
bless her heart. Uh, <laughs> Poor but, but like describing them being like, oh, the badass, it like flattens them because they're very different. Mm-hmm. And like Jalissa, like you were saying, like Shiv uses different tactics as like an individual fully written character. Alyssa, I wonder what your thoughts are because I know you have a lot. Oh my God, so many. <laughs> so it is, it's like, so here's the thing I think about Shiv and Jerry. None of them, I mean, yeah, Shiv and Jerry, is that neither of them are, so going back to one of my favorite quotes ever from Temple Grandin is, uh, Temple always saw herself as different, not less. And I feel like the characters of Shiv and Jerry are written as different to each other and the men, but not less, right? Like there are far weaker characters, like Cousin Greg, Tom. I mean, they are dipshits by comparison to Shiv and Jerry. And so, you know, I just love also it shows the rainbow of colors that women can be like Jerry kind of like rides a little more below the radar. You know, Shiv is a little bit more Machiavellian in some of her positioning and especially at the end of last season. My God, when she went to go see the woman who had been the worker on the boat. I mean, please. Oh, and the Holly Hunter character. Oh, yeah. yes. Oh, from Raya. Last season. Raya. Raya. Yeah. Raya. Raya. Yeah. I mean, and they were all three of them were just totally different. And the fact that also in succession, the sort of chief rival to not rival, but sort of peer to Logan was the woman who was played by Cherry Jones, right? As the as the other like empire leader. Mm -hmm. So I just, you know, it's like to me, that's why I love watching those characters and same kind of on the morning show is that I don't want to watch or aspire to someone who's like 100% good in the eyes of Hollywood, I guess. You know, like Mm -hmm. this person has the purest of motivations and only wants to help babies and puppies. And no, I want to see Shiv try to like stick the shank in somebody and and get hers by the same means that, you know, her brothers would. If that's if that's what feels good to her. It's not an interesting story if a character is without flaws. Right. It's just not interesting to watch. I get to accept Ted Lasso. <laughs> I don't. I, you know what? I I don't watch that show. What? Yeah, oh my god! I don't. I don't watch that show. I. It's not really my taste. I I know a lot of people really love it, and it's really joy. Like, joy is not yeah, your joy. taste. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> no. I I only like I'm on Squid Game. I'm oh, that's on, the opposite oh. of Ted Lasso. <laughs> I, I'm on Squid it's too Game. Much for I'm, me. I'm yeah. on Succession. I'm like, it's 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 dark. That's a feast of human misery, is what that is. <laughs> yeah, but it's so colorful. It's so colorful. <laughs> so I watch all of those shows, but that's why I need Ted Lasso to sprinkle. <laughs> yes. Yes. That's why I watch Mary Tyler Moore, and I think that the characters are more complicated than a lot of the characters. I go Squid Game, Ted Lasso, Succession. Great British baking show. You gotta balance it. Okay. <laughs> you have like a like a wicker basket weave of like positivity and negativity, yeah, like reinforcing each other. Literally, sometimes Ian and my fiance and I would watch a Squid Game, and then he'd be like, "We gotta throw a bake on off. We gotta <laughs> throw 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 on a bake off uh, just to yeah, counter you need it before a palate bed. cleanser." Yeah. Okay. Well, that makes that makes sense. I think one thing that bringing back to the badass conversation, um, one thing that one of the reasons I love watching Succession and I love watching the, the female characters in Succession because there's never been a moment on that show where I've rolled my eyes and been like, why did they make the woman do that? You know, totally. and like so many shows have a moment where I'm like, 
Oh, come on. Like, a, like I don't know a single woman who would do what that character just did. And I don't know anybody like Shiv Roy because if I did, I would fear for my life. But uh, I do know people who, you know, sometimes can be Machiavellian and act a little bit like Shiv where if she gets angry, she totally loses her shit and cannot bring it back. Like if she is surprised by a feeling of betrayal, she just she cannot reel it back in. And, you know, I've known women like Jerry who are like, when I'm watching the show, I'm like, I like Jerry. I want to hang out with her. And it's like, no, she is propping up the evil. Like, she's one of the most evil people because she's so pleasant about making the trains run on time, you know? And so I think that just the fact that, like Dana, you've implied, none of the characters are flat. None of the characters are flattened by being badasses or being, like, tough-ass broads or being, like, you know, sassy spark plugs of business or whatever. They're all like, you could make those characters men and they would still make sense. And a lot of the male characters you could turn into women with a few minor tweaks and they would still make sense. I think that's my thesis. Like, I agree that badass in the proper context can be good and is a useful word and is empowering and where it's a crutch is where people use it because they're too lazy to either fully flesh out female characters or actually give historical figures the due that they would give to men. I agree with that. That's a good distinction. I I, I agree. Um, So we're going to keep calling Julissa a badass. Oh, Julissa, what do you want to say? Oh, I was going to say one quick thing about, um, you know, obviously Jesse Armstrong, uh, the creator of of Succession, but I bet you anything, and I don't know for a I don't know this for a fact because I haven't looked into who else is in that writer's room, but I bet you anything, there's a lot of women in that writer's room writing female characters and not, you know, men trying to think like they or pretend that they know what women would do in certain situations. So that's my plug for hire more women writers. I think, (laughs) well, Mad Men, the last few seasons, there were more women writing Mad Men than there were men. And at the same time, there were more men in the girls' writer room, writer's room writing girls. So hmm. that was a fun little gender-flipping thing going on and a factoid to end this segment for our listeners out there. Okay, let's take a quick break. When we come back, we're going to talk about what we're feeling petty about. Housekeeping. Next week's episode is on ghosting. Get it? Halloween. And we want to hear from you. If you have a story of a time that you were ghosted, record a 30-second voice memo on your phone and email us at hysteria at crooked.com. And then tune in next week because you might hear your story on the show. Okay, house has been kept. Let's talk about what we're feeling petty about this week. Um, I'm going to go first because I feel like this is maybe a little overdue. I was feeling petty about this last week and then I just didn't bring it up. Because I forgot, because my brain's broken. Uh, But a week and a half ago, pictures of Timothy Chalamet started circulating. And young Timothy is dressed as, uh, looks like a a sexual Ebenezer Scrooge, sort of. That's a great way to put it. Sort of. And he (laughs) is supposed to be playing a young Willy Wonka because apparently Hollywood is not out of ideas, but afraid of any idea that hasn't already existed. So they're doing a prequel of Willy Wonka, and in the prequel, Chalamet will be playing Willy Wonka. 
here's what I feel petty about this week. Absolutely not. I think that he is a <laughs> fabulous, he's a fabulous actor and everything I've seen him in, he's been great in. And I'm sure that he will do well with um, with this role, but he is not right for the role. Like ever since I read really Willy Wonka when I was a kid, what the vibe is in the book is Willy Wonka is sort of like a stunted, weird, childlike, vaguely menacing character. Everything you said is Timothy Chalamet. He is not menacing. Those cheekbones? That is no- he went to LaGuardia. There is nothing <laughs> menacing. There is nothing menacing about his cheekbones. His cheekbones should be in a museum. He's got beautiful. No, Willy Wonka is a little bit scary. And Gene Wilder almost got it right. But Gene Wilder is too much of a man to play Willy Wonka. And, uh, and Johnny Depp went too creepy with Willy Wonka. I think the ideal Willy Wonka would be somebody like comedian Patty Harrison, who is the perfect combination of, like, fun, but, like, are you dangerous? Is some like, are you going to hurt me? Are you going to throw something? There's something that is unhinged about her style of comedy that I think would lend itself really well to being like an on-screen Willy Wonka. I want somebody who feels like they're not quite all there. And Chalamet is very all there. I feel like we, and like Patty Harrison, I think is one of the funniest comedians working today. This is like a high compliment. I would love, I just want to see her as like a Roald Dahl hero that is like sort of scary to children, you know? Oh. You well, know? now I want to see that. I know. So this is my, it's a free idea. I'm giving <laughs> this idea to Hollywood. I don't believe that Chalamet should be a young Willy Wonka. It is not it is not right and I rebuke it. I rebuke it. Okay. Julissa, what are you feeling petty about this week? Um this is probably my own fault, so I will say that up front. This is my own fault for sharing <laughs> things on the internet. You feel regretty. <laughs> yes. Yes. You know, sometimes you like have a headache and or like I have a headache and then I'll go on my Instagram stories and I'm like, I have a headache. And sometimes I think, why did I just do that? Like I didn't need the whole world to know that I have a headache. But in that moment, I felt some sort of release about sharing that I had a headache. Okay. So I also shared this week that I, I have psoriasis. And I get really bad psoriasis sometimes like uh, along my scalp and like on my legs. And so then people started sending me um, suggestions, you know, like, have you tried this? Have you tried that? Have you tried this other thing? And most of them is like sweet, like, thank you. I appreciate you taking the time to like give me some home remedy because sometimes when I share my ailments, a, a, a suggestion will come back that's actually helpful. But sometimes people take it too far. For example, my friend James and I'm calling him out by name. It's like, uh, have you tried a 48-hour water fast? And I'm like, no, I have not tried a five-hour water fast. Like, so some, some, some of these suggestions are just like crazy and, and annoying. And, and people, I think what really bothers me is not so much the suggestions as much as the fasting suggestions. Like, People constantly telling me to fast for different things. Like, my head hurts. Fast. Uh, I need to lose weight. Fast. Um, my stomach hurts. Fast. Like, every, like everybody thinks that fasting is a solution to, like, every problem in the world. And then you'll stop. Like, don't tell me to fast. Thank you very much. Right. It sort of reminds me of that whole problem that men are from Mars, women are from Venus is, is mostly garbage. But... 
sometimes people just want to communicate that they have a problem and they want to receive support. Like, I'm so sorry that's happening to you. That sucks. That sounds really uncomfortable. And sometimes people want solutions. And when you're like communicating, looking for support and someone comes to you with like a solution that you've already ruled out or you weren't looking for, I find it very irksome. And I think that that like sometimes can happen when it comes to like health stuff. Like, I'm feeling really tired today. Well, have you tried taking a supplement? No, I just wanted to tell you I feel tired so I get a little fucking sympathy. Or I'll be like, I suffer from depression and anxiety. And people are like, you should really just take a walk. (laughs) (laughs) Oh, great. Thank you. Oh, Oh, man. Yeah, sometimes it's like good to be like, you know what? I'm in the same house as you, Dana. You've been on your couch looking at Instagram for seven hours. I'm going to intervene and tell you to get up and leave the leave the house because I can see you doing this. Yeah. That's different than someone being like, have you tried the la la la? I mean, usually I do need to take a walk, but that's a different thing. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, I do do acupuncture. I do acupuncture for my back and my headaches and my chi. I align my chi at acupuncture. Does it work? Do you like it's it? It's very helpful. I love it. Jung acupuncture on Vermont. <laughs> Highly recommend it. <laughs> <laughs> Wait, I think I used to go to that one. We'll talk offline. Um, Dana, what are you feeling petty about this week? Um, I'm sure this has maybe come up at some point in some iteration, but I recently in this, you know, not post-COVID, but like I've started sort of traveling again, and it reminded me that people at airports act like they have never flown uh, before, and I just think get your shit together if you're going to fly in an airplane, number one. Uh, people are going through the the security thing with their keys and coins in their pocket. Come on, that's a day one thing. Know that at this point. And also, when you're lining up to get into the plane, it's a very small door, and everyone's going to get on the plane. And when they say, okay, boarding group one, don't boarding group four, don't be clogging up the, the, the <laughs> situation. Let people through. You're all going to get on. Relax. Sit down. And don't stand up until your boarding group is called. And that also goes for when the plane lands and everyone just stands up in the aisle. Ugh. It's going to be forever until you get off the plane. Just take a seat. Relax. Everyone, this, everyone's going to get off the plane. They're not going to leave you and then fly to Tulsa with you <laughs> on the plane. Take a breath. It's very annoying to me when people crowd around like they think they're they're going to hack the system. Yeah. It's, it's also, like, visibly unhackable. Like, if, if you were like, okay, what are the odds of this working out for me? Low. Yeah, low. Absolutely low. You don't have to stand immediately when the plane hits the tarmac. I promise you, you're not going to get off the plane sooner. <laughs> Man, it has been a long time since I've flown on a plane, and I'm not looking forward to it. It's so miserable. Yeah, it reminded me that uh, it's not great. No, it's bad. <laughs> we need to build back better just so that I have an op, like I can take a train. I just want to take a train to Minneapolis. That's all. Like a good, a nice train that doesn't take three days. Oh, I like you know? nice European trains. Oh, that's fine too. I just want a bullet train option yeah. if I'm just trying to travel for the holiday. Yeah. Versus making the train trip part of the the journey. Um, and also, a lot of American trains are like bad. They're like really like no Wi-Fi and rickety. <laughs> Where it's like True. European bullet trains, it feels like the future. And then you come back and ride a train in America and you're like, why has there? Why has this not been communicated over here? Yeah, the nicest thing we have is the Acela. And that's like about as nice as a nice plane. Yeah. About as nice. Anyway, uh, Alyssa, what are you feeling petty about this week? You guys just made me 
you took me straight back to Japanese class in 1995. And let me tell you, the word for bullet train is Shinkansen. <laughs> it, was, it was part of every skit we ever had to do. Um, <laughs> I feel petty about uh, fundraising emails from political people. Let me tell you why. I understand everybody needs to raise money. I get it. I get it. We've all been there. But like last cycle wasn't a great demonstration of people using the money for great things like candidates left at the end with many million dollars in their bank account. But here's where it gets me. Don't send me an email and be like, dear Alyssa, spelled incorrectly, you <laughs> should really – uh, you should really uh, give me money so I can fight for abortion rights and blah, 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 blah. Okay. You're not up this cycle. I fucking looked, one. And two, if you really want to help abortion rights, why don't you send emails to your list that says donate to the Yellowhammer Fund, donate to directly to NARAL, donate to people who are doing the Planned Parenthood, donate money to people actually doing the work on the ground. So I just want to shout out my forever mentor, Bernie Sanders, who actually brought the subject to the front of mind as to what I would like people to do because he actually sent an email to his list asking people to donate directly to organizations that were helping people get abortions and fund activists on the ground. So anyway, I see you people. And if you keep sending me these emails, I will start naming names on Twitter. Um... So that's that. That's what I feel petty about. Stop. Wow, stop asking me for money if you're not in cycle to stop what's happening on the ground when you're not on the ground. <laughs> a, a, I know one. this is not sanity corner, but a sanity corner uh, remedy. I just love the unsubscribe button. <gasps> yeah. But it keeps coming back, Julissa. That's the thing. I unsubscribe several hours a week. And they still keep coming back. <laughs> what about, okay, other solution, set up a filter. You can set up a Gmail filter for any email that contains the word unsubscribe. And that way, like, all of your emails that you could possibly unsubscribe to will get immediately archived. Or if there's a, or if there's a sender that is, like, habitually, like, just repopulating, create a filter for that name and then it's just like automatically deleted before it even hits your inbox. I have a weird problem. Somehow I got on some political mailing list or with my dad's name. <laughs> I don't know how or why or like what. So all of my political emails are like, Michael, it's it now is our time. <laughs> <laughs> and I've unsubscribed so many times and still people are demanding that Michael uh, take action. Oh, you just man. start forwarding well, them to your dad. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> All right. Well, those are all great things to feel petty about this week. Um, Julissa and Dana, thank you so much for coming by today. Uh, Dana, thanks for being in studio. Oh, Julissa, I hope you feel better soon. Yeah, feel better. Thank you. I will feel um, better. You know what will let me feel better? If people pre-order my book. <laughs> that she, she's going to send an email to everybody saying just 2,000 more pre-orders and my headache will be cured. Can I also say if this is you not feeling well, like your hair and earrings, you just like look gorgeous and glowy thank like you like your hair is done and you're wearing really cute earrings thank yeah. you she does look great today yeah. i think our listeners need to know that julissa looks great yeah thank um, you Alyssa, thank you as always for being my ride or die thank you to representative rosa deloro of connecticut for stopping by to talk about what's happening in the build back better plan and thanks to all of you the listeners there will be more hysteria for you next week
Hysteria is a Crooked Media production. Caroline Reston is our producer. Our executive producer is me, Aaron Ryan. Alyssa Mastromonaco is our co-producer, and Brian Semmel is our associate producer. Kyle Seglin and Charlotte Landis are the sound engineers, and our editor is Sarah Gibalaska and the folks at Chapter 4. Thank you to our digital team, Nar Melkonian, Mia Kelman, Milo Kim, and Matt DeGroote. 